0: This is Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith.
1: Extreme weather from record rains to impossible winter heat waves emerge from the overloaded atmosphere. A new paper on extreme heat and rainfall is just in time. From Madrid, we talk with lead author Dr. Alexander Robinson.
2: Now, I'm talking about record rainfall, so really just the most extreme rainfall you might have of any given day, you can expect that one in four of those records will be due to climate change.
1: Author and energy specialist Richard Heinberg talks us through high prices, the fragile energy market, and his new book, Power Limits and Prospects for Human Survival.
0: We've put off the energy transition. Uh, far too long for it to be some kind of gentle controlled process because the the transition itself is going to take a lot of energy building all that infrastructure not just for solar panels and wind turbines but and electric cars and heat pumps but a, a, a super grid uh, new industrial infrastructure
1: On Canada's west coast British Columbia has become the poster child for climate disasters Following the deadly heat dome that killed hundreds last summer, almost three million people in Greater Vancouver were cut off from the rest of the country. Three atmospheric rivers brought landslides down over highways, flooded towns and farms, and created havoc. People in New England and the Canadian Maritimes know how it is. An atmospheric river brought washouts, flooded homes, and unseasonable heavy rains to the East Coast last week. Listeners in the UK and Northern Europe went through plenty of extreme rains this season, and Australians are no strangers to weird flooding downpours. China, well, extreme rains are almost everywhere and increasing almost everywhere. Let's find out more about this from the scientists who specialize in extreme weather. A freak summer heat wave in the Pacific Northwest killed hundreds in the summer of 2021. In November, three atmospheric rivers brought flooding and landslides, cutting Vancouver off from the rest of Canada. Thousands were forced from their homes. Gasoline was rationed. Welcome to the future. According to Breaking Science, extreme weather is rapidly becoming the new normal. The paper title tells all, increasing heat and rainfall extremes now far outside the historical climate. We reach the lead author, Dr. Alexander Robinson. He is an assistant professor at Complutense University of Madrid and guest scientist at the Potsdam Institute for Climate Impact Research. From Madrid, Alex Robinson, welcome to Radio EcoShock.
2: Hi, thanks for having
1: me. You are the man of the hour. What is your impression of the events in British Columbia relative to the paper you just published this October in Nature's NPJ Journal?
2: Yes, I think the events in, in British Columbia are certainly scary to see playing out, and especially after such recent events happening again last summer and in and, and different magnitudes. You have droughts, you have heat waves, and you have fires as well. So it seems like you have the trifecta there.
1: We are experiencing, I think, in advance of some, but not necessarily all. Uh, there have been many places struck by extreme climate this year. Now, just on the first day in December here, it was 22.5 degrees C, or 72 Fahrenheit, a few miles from my studio, and it was the hottest December day ever recorded in our province and possibly in Canada. The same December day, it was over 70 degrees Fahrenheit in Boulder, Colorado. That is crazy. Summer-like heat in the winter. Tell us about your explorations into extreme heat around the world in 2020.
0: What we
2: tried to look at was the more global picture of how climate change is evolving over time. And so to do that, we first looked at, well, a gritty global data set of monthly temperature anomalies so that we could get an idea of what was happening. And, And we tried to do this really on a statistical level. So we looked at a period before there was much global warming, so before the 1980s, and we took that as kind of a reference climate period. And what we found is that when you look at this on a global scale, essentially the variability, the year-to-year change in in any given month's temperature at any given place roughly follows a a normal distribution. So essentially you have a mean temperature at a place, the average expected climate you could expect for July or December, and then any given year you might have some variability around that, and that variability followed a a bell curve. You know, you would typically have some variation around that mean and a Every once in a while, you'll have more extreme variation. But that extreme variation is much less likely to happen. Then, what we can do, starting from that reference point, is look at what happens when you impose a trend on top of that, which is what's happening uh, with climate change. And so, we can look at the observations that we have over the last 60 years, and we can see, uh, we can basically track how much those extreme events have increased in frequency compared to that reference period. And so we see that really extreme events, so what we call four-sigma events, which are four standard deviations away from the average climate, those used to be nonexistent in the reference period. About 0.003% of the time you might possibly have one of these events happening. And now globally those are happening about 3% of the time. So that's about a thousand-fold increase in these really extreme forcing events. Those have only emerged in the last decade, according to our analysis. So it's not everywhere that's experiencing that. That's mainly in the tropics where you're getting such dramatic changes in these streams. But I think it's a bit the canary in the coal mine. It's starting to show what, what we can expect as levels of warming continue to rise.
1: Over the decades, there have been swings of temperatures with a couple of years of high heat in the 1930s, for example. What makes you think the recent heat waves from Siberia to Australia are not natural?
2: I think there are now several lines of evidence that support uh, the fact that this is uh, anthropogenic in nature. Of course, there's a natural variability component to that, but overall, uh, we can see that the dominant factor, particularly in, in uh, long heat waves, is, is becoming anthropogenic change. So um, not only studies like mine clearly show that, they're really statistically outside of the norm. So we looked at actually two different metrics, not just the one I just explained, but also uh, record-breaking temperature anomalies, and those in a climate that's not warming also follow a particular pattern. Basically, you uh, it's harder and harder to get a record if your climate is not changing, right? because the temperature would just have to go higher and higher, and that statistically wouldn't really make sense if the climate's not changing. But if you impose a warming trend on top of that, then it starts to become easier to get those records, because you just slowly, with the mean, you start increasing your temperature, eventually you'll hit one of those records. So we see that statistically, that's reflected in the observations, and it's consistent with a warming climate. And then there are other studies. So there's uh, actually an excellent international group called the... World Weather Attribution Organization, and they're also doing really neat work trying to produce kind of rapid attribution studies after the fact, Um, and they've clearly shown that that most recent events would have been almost impossible without uh, a climate change component. So those and modeling, I mean, there there's several lines of evidence now. The, The question is not really, is it being affected by global warming, but rather how much?
1: Essentially, this paper suggests older people who grew up in the 1950s or 60s saw the last stable climate. Have we left what you call the stationary climate behind now?
2: I think so. I think that that's uh, absolutely the case. And I think we actually left it behind a long time ago. It's simply that we're just now starting to discern the signal from the noise, right? So we had to get enough warming. I mean, particularly the further north you go, or the higher latitudes, rather, the more variability you can expect in a given year, right? So uh, near the equator, the variability is much lower. It's about a half a degree for a monthly, a month, you know, a July temperature there is going to be within a half a degree of, of what it always is. Whereas in Canada, maybe that variability is much closer to, to two or three degrees. So, and, and even seasonally, it's changing a lot. So that. Noise is is a lot harder to overcome and you need to have a stronger global warming signal before that signal starts to emerge. And I think what we're seeing is now a really robust emergence of the signal from the noise.
1: So when it comes to the great western heat dome that smothered the Pacific Northwest from Portland to our area of Canada, we should mention a new study just out in November about this event from the Netherlands. S. Y. Philippe led the paper. Rapid Attribution Analysis of the Extraordinary Heat Wave on the Pacific Coast of the U.S. and Canada, June 2021. Alex, what did they find?
2: Uh, Yeah, they found very clearly that the heat wave really couldn't have occurred uh, otherwise without global warming. So I wasn't involved in that study, but definitely they... Basically, many of these people are are contributors to this weather attribution, uh, World Weather Attribution Organization. And they, again, they looked at at data from uh, weather observations uh, in the region. Um, And they also looked at at modeling to kind of look at how this could play a role. And they clearly found that these temperatures were so extreme and so high that it really couldn't have happened without human-caused climate change. And for them, as I recall, they have, they estimated the event was about a one-in-a-thousand-year event in today's climate. So according to the statistics, it, it, it was extremely unexpected for such an event to occur.
1: And I think the public misunderstands those kinds of statements, because to say it's one in a thousand years, I think some people tend to think, well, we won't see another one for another thousand years. But that isn't how it works at all, is it?
2: No, no, you're right. I mean, statistically speaking, you have to take it into account that this is just talking about probabilities and and how frequently we could expect it. But it could be just like rolling the dice. You can get two sixes in a row. You can get two uh, really warm years in a row. The point is that it it would be unlikely to see them again and again and again, and we would have to maybe revise our statistical model. On the other hand, it's kind of indicative of, of a quote from Jim Henson a while ago, you know, that the dice are starting to become loaded. And so that's where what we're seeing is what used to be maybe one in a thousand year events are becoming maybe one in a hundred year events or, or even shorter. So, you know, those one in a thousand year events refer to a stationary climate. And then I think that's the case, that if you didn't have any global warming, you might have this freak event, you might have this huge warming but then it would be unlikely to see it again for a long time. But now, with the background changing, it's anybody's guess, and especially when you introduce a nonlinear component like uh, jet stream oscillation.
1: In a recent interview, Johannes Lohmann from the Niels Bohr Institute explained that with climate, the rate of change can be as important as the amount of change. Your paper documents changes in both heat and rainfall, developing not over centuries, as one might expect, but increasing rapidly with every decade. Is the speed of increase in these extreme weather events serious, in your opinion?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's a really good question. I think that from the atmospheric dynamics point of view, it's hard to say what effect the rate of increase is having. But certainly, one can expect that the oceans should, over longer times, absorb heat that we're pumping into the atmosphere and and try to restore that balance. And so... If we're overwhelming that mechanism, then certainly we're going to have more heat in the atmosphere than we otherwise would more to the point for the rate of change I think is important for for the question of adaptation and so not just for humans but rather for ecosystems for animals and and for plants and these types of migratory effects that can that can result when when a region becomes unlivable for a certain species they're going to migrate and try to find somewhere else. But if that change is happening uh, extremely fast, it may not be possible for them to adapt, and then you may instead just have, have an ecosystem collapse.
1: Let's move from extreme heat to extreme rain. As you know, my hometown of Vancouver is a wet coastal city. We're very used to rain. But three atmospheric rivers in almost a week just about drowned the whole region. A a historic lake refilled, thousands were evacuated, countless homes and lives were ruined. Talk to us about your research into extreme rainfall events.
2: Sure, yeah. We um, updated an analysis um, as well. In the same paper, we were looking at, at rainfall extremes as well. And there, there's clearly an increase, especially on the global scale, that we can see associated with uh, rainfall. So we looked at daily rainfall uh, observations, and we found that uh, now talking about record rainfall, so really just the most extreme rainfall you might have of any given day, you can expect that one in four of those records will be due to climate change. But, of course, the signal is, is certainly less clear-cut than it is for, for temperatures. There's a really one-to-one correlation with pumping CO2 in the atmosphere and increasing the temperature. Precipitation is much more nonlinear, and so it, it, it's much more related to atmospheric dynamics as well. Nonetheless, with increasing temperatures, you can expect that the atmosphere has a higher capacity for carrying water and distributing that elsewhere. And so that's, I think, what can be reflected Partly that atmospheric rivers, not necessarily that the atmospheric rivers exist, but certainly uh, that they might be laden with more water, so have have more destructive potential.
1: In my opinion, a lot of these extreme rainfall events escape people's notice if they don't happen in North America or Europe or Australia or one of the world's media centers. Only a few people watching BBC or Al Jazeera heard about the first big flood of 2020 in Jakarta, Indonesia, that you studied. Are these extreme rainfall events happening more in the tropics, like African countries or Brazil, uh, than in the high-media countries?
2: That's right. I think I think they're certainly more typical in the, in the tropical regions, where you have a lot more uh, water in the atmosphere as well. But as you're seeing they're certainly possible for them to happen uh, everywhere so you you just need the atmospheric dynamics combined with a a source to distribute that precipitation uh, through the atmospheric river so I think it will be really interesting to see it's certainly not my area of expertise to look at at this from the atmospheric point of view but uh, I know that a lot of people are are looking into atmospheric rivers because it's certainly seems to be that there's an increase in activity that we need to understand.
1: This is Radio Ecoshock from Madrid and the Potsdam Institute. Our guest is Dr. Alexander Robinson. He and his team found extreme heat and rainfall events are coming faster and covering more of the Earth as we heat the planet. Before we continue with new science of extreme heat and rain, I want to take a brief excursion into your research into the Greenland ice sheet melt. In March 2021, I talked with Dr. Andrew Christ from the University of Vermont. He told us Greenland was ice-free, more or less, within the last million years. Alex, you published something about that in 2017. What did you find?
2: Yeah, we, uh, it's really a different tack because they were looking at, at paleoclimatic changes, and that's really what's interesting for the Greenland ice sheet because it's been around for a really long time. But certainly there's evidence from ice cores that have been taken from Greenland and from evidence from, from other sediment cores that hint at the possibility that Greenland maybe lost a significant portion of ice in the last million years, particularly during a a warm interglacial period called Miss 11, so that was about 400,000 years ago. Uh, And it was a warm period that lasted much longer than the current warm period, the Holocene that we live in today, maybe about twice as long with temperatures similar or warmer than today. And so what we looked at in that study is we tried to simulate that with an ice sheet model coupled to a regional climate model. And we don't know exactly what the climate was like then, but we have a a fairly good idea, and we use that to inform our model of of how it could be driven, basically, by temperature anomalies from around the Greenland area. And then we use that to force the ice sheet model and see what happened over this long, warm period. Uh, And what we found, indeed, was that when you have warming above today's levels for a very long time, uh, at least in those conditions in Miss 11, it is a almost deglaciated Greenland completely, although not entirely. There's still some mountain regions where you had some glaciers, but overall it was essentially lost with about six meters of contribution to sea level during that time.
1: And way back in 2011, you and scientist Andrei Ganapolsky from PIC stated, Paleoclimate, the past is not the future when it comes to Greenland. What did you mean? Well,
2: yeah, it's very easy to... Imagine that we had a warm period a long time ago, 100,000 years ago or 400,000 years ago, and Greenland melted. Therefore, if we have a warm period in the future, Greenland will melt. That's the logical conclusion. And roughly, that's a true statement. But there were different factors to take into consideration in in paleoclimate. For one, the uh, the predominant factor is the change in the orbital configuration of the Earth. So on those timescales, actually, the orbit of the Earth is changing, how it's angled towards the sun, how wide its ellipse is around the sun. This all changes in a periodic manner. And so you can have a different configuration that means that your seasons are slightly different or the amount of solar radiation arriving at the Earth's surface is different than it was today. And so those factors can have a large impact on atmospheric dynamics and as well, what's happening with the ice sheet. So what I tend to think of these paleoclimatic periods are extremely important for informing us about the mechanisms that were present, that uh, and they allow us to constrain our models as well and make sure that we're working with a physical mechanism that makes sense in Earth's history. And then we can use that calibration to then project into the future with more confidence. But The projection itself needs to come from modeling of the future, not directly looking at the past.
1: Getting back to extreme heat in your latest paper, will deadly heat expand evenly over the world, affecting all countries?
2: Uh, No, I think that would be a rather unlikely way for it to happen. We're already seeing that certain regions are disproportionately affected, particularly now the emerging extreme heat is coming from the tropics and equatorial regions. And these, of course, are regions that are typically the least equipped to deal with these changes. And as the global warming signal increases, this will shift to higher latitudes and will certainly suffer under those changes. But again, I think that you have to look at countries' capacities to deal with those uh, impacts. So. Both combined, you will have uh, uneven changes around the world and you'll have uneven impacts.
1: Do you think heating in the tropics is another case of climate injustice, where people who emitted the fewest greenhouse gases get the worst impacts of global warming?
2: I definitely think it's a strong argument in that direction. I think that needs to be part of the discussion moving forward, is how to compensate and adjust for those impacts, because Certainly, we know that uh, we can attribute global warming today to our CO2 emissions, and and we know predominantly where those historical emissions have come from, and they have not been coming from the tropics. I
1: I think this whole heat wave in the tropics thing has been greatly undercovered. People in northern climates tend to think, well, it's always hot down there. People are used to it. They're, They're ready for it. But in fact these heat waves can be very deadly in the tropics and I think they will or could drive mass migration away from those places. Do you have any ideas on those lines?
2: Yeah, I think you're right. They've certainly been undercovered, and part of that may be to do with the fact, as I alluded to before, that the variability in these regions is generally lower. So we may be talking about a shift of only half a degree or one degree there. But when you're talking about a place that is already very warm and, and likely very humid as well, then you get up to heat in the indices that are can be very dangerous for human health, in fact. And so it's going to be very problematic, I think, for these regions, and it should be something that we should be paying attention to. And again, this extreme heat is only going to be expanding to wider and wider regions.
1: On extreme rainfall, I note the systems for water runoff, uh, flood protection, and sewage were all built to handle conditions in the previous century, in the more stable 1900s. What does this research tell planners and citizens about the new future?
2: Well, for one, that it's going to be constantly changing, assuming that we don't stop emitting CO2 sooner rather than later. So not only do we need to adjust our thinking for the potential for extreme rainfall or combined events as well, so droughts followed by rainfall, which exacerbate the whole problem, but that we need to be aware that that's going to be changing over time and, and getting worse as well. So certainly we need to have a new mentality going into the next century than we've had uh, historical. We should not be paving and building cities uh, over rivers like we maybe used to do, uh, but we should actually incorporate these floodplains and, and flood routes uh, into our planning. And, and I think there's definitely been a shift in that direction. The problem is overcoming the built environment that we already have, and that's going to be a, a transition that's going to need to happen in the next years.
1: The results of your paper seemed a bit shocking and and new, even to me, and I watch these things. Did scientists realize, say in the year 2000, did they know this rapid increase in extreme heat and rainfall events would happen so soon? Or is this a new realization in science and it hasn't reached the public and governments and corporations yet?
2: I think that our results that come from observations, essentially, are not outside of the thinking that, that was coming from from modeling that was happening in, in 2000. I mean, model simulation from the first IPCC reports, are, are largely consistent in their projections with what we have coming out today. But certainly it is important to see that playing out in observations. No, so I think, I think it's not wholly new. I think there really is evidence of this from modeling that we've had in the past, and now this is coming out in observations as well. But of course, what I think is new to science is the nonlinear component. So what you see... For example, in the in the heat wave in Canada, what is really shocking even to a scientist like me who's studying this is seeing fifty degrees Celsius up at latitude of Canada. That just seems very strange and very sudden. And that's a non linear component of the dynamics that that is under investigation today and is not fully clear related to jet stream meandering and having these heat dome blocking events. This was not necessarily predicted in the models in 2000 because we didn't have the resolution to really project these events. And, and now the models are starting to get good enough that we can understand that and also reanalyze these uh, data as well. And so we're getting a, a better handle on the dynamics and what's really possible.
1: 2021 was the summer from hell here with the heat, fires, and smoke. And now supplies are short. Roads and railways are broken by the super rains. People are a bit angry and, and they're definitely stressed and worried how do you and others at the Potsdam Institute handle personally the, the seriousness, maybe even I would say the horror, of what scientists do see for the future?
2: It's a really good question. It's, it's a, it's a, on a personal level, it's challenging because on the one hand, you look at these problems rather objectively as a scientist looking at the data and trying to understand phenomena and, and analyze it and calculate certain things. But, of course, then when you go into your life and you see that with great confidence, especially being the one or one of many who's making these analyses.
1: What are you working on next, Alex?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. I'm doing multiple things. I'm certainly still focused on on researching the ice sheets, both uh, Greenland and Antarctica, their past and their future. But in terms of extreme weather, I have a real interest in understanding more the frequency of extreme weather, um, particularly from the point of view of energy generation, actually. So I've been collaborating with scientists to look into what does extreme weather mean for power plants and for the possibility of blackouts and things like that. So I, I'm working on developing analyses and, and tools so that we can inform better engineers that would be interested in this data for, for power plants. And in general, that that... I would like to continue following the lead of of the extreme weather and understand more details about where it might be taking us and and how we can better refine our understanding of whether it was due to climate change or whether it's, it's natural and when we can expect to see the difference.
1: From one of the world's oldest universities, Universidad Complutense de Madrid, we have been speaking with Assistant Professor Alexander Robinson, Find links to his important new paper on extreme heat and rainfall in my show blog at ecoshock.org. The paper is open access, freely available to all. Alex Robinson, thank you for sharing your time with our listeners.
2: Thank you for having me. Check out the Radio Ecoshock website.
0: We're at ecoshock.org.
1: Alex Robinson is studying the impacts of extreme weather on power production Changes to heat and precipitation make power production more fragile. Even greener energy sources we count on. A company planned to use meltwater from snow in the high Andes of Chile to produce 2,000 gigawatts of electricity a year. Climate change routed precipitation away from that region, cutting possible power production in half. This November, the subsidiary of AES Corporation, working on the project, declared bankruptcy in Delaware. Scientists call the revolutions of water from the oceans to sky to land and back the hydrological cycle. Changes to that cycle are already affecting dams and hydropower stations all over the world. It is another wrinkle to watch, trying to transition not to avoid a climate crisis, but during a climate crisis. Coming up, post-carbon guru Richard Heinberg explains why we need fossil fuels to leave fossil fuels behind. The Power of Beauty, and his latest book, including Prospects for Human Survival. You're listening to EcoShock Radio for the World. I'm Alex Smith. Get it all at our website, EcoShock.org. Why are gas and oil prices so high? Why is everyone rushing to produce more fossil fuels? While climate catastrophe strikes all over the world, is there a fatal misunderstanding lurking in all of our minds? We need to talk with Richard Heinberg. Richard wrote pioneering books on oil, fracking, coal, energy, and community. He's a senior fellow in residence at the Post Carbon Institute. Richard has appeared on Radio EcoShock several times since 2009, From Santa Rosa, California, Richard Heinberg, a warm welcome back to Radio EcoShock.
0: Oh, Alex, it's a pleasure to be speaking with you again.
1: You too. Now, look, we have a full agenda for our little chat here. You report a major roadblock in your new book, Power, Limits and Prospects for Human Survival. But first, many of our listeners are super nervous about what is happening in world energy markets. You know, gas is so high at the pumps. Europe is worried about getting enough energy for heat this winter. Do you have an introductory sort of overview of energy fragility as we head into 2022?
0: Yeah, there there are a lot of short-term causes for the high energy prices we're seeing right now, which are basically high fossil fuel prices. Uh, Coal, oil, and natural gas all are at not necessarily record prices, but historically high prices right now. Some of those proximate causes have to do with the pandemic and the whipsawing of the economy that's happened over the last uh, 18 months, two years as a result of that. But in back of all of those events is something else that's going on, which nobody wants to talk about, which is simply depletion. Depletion of the coal, oil, and gas that were originally present in the Earth's crust. We've been extracting these fossil fuels using the low-hanging fruit principle, getting the the cheapest, easiest, and best stuff first, and leaving the nasty dirty hard-to-get stuff for later. And it's increasingly later. So the problem that uh, the industry is talking about is insufficient investment. There's not enough investment going into producing enough coal, oil, and natural gas to supply markets. But it's partly due to the short-term factors I was alluding to earlier. But it's also partly due to the fact that it just takes more energy and effort to find and produce these fuels than it used to. And as we go on, that situation can only get worse.
1: And despite the pandemic and supply chain problems, the world is still overheating. Emissions are going up because humans are dumping more greenhouse gases into the air. Nobody connects fossil fuels to the fires and floods until very lately, not the government, not the media. Do you feel that disconnect?
0: Oh, absolutely. See, the problem is energy is necessary for everything we do. And we've just come off of a couple of centuries of super cheap energy that enabled us to do everything uh, faster and on a larger scale. And the result was the consumer economy of the 20th century and urbanization, uh, the growth of the middle class, all of these things, in many cases, you know, were really great. But but they were predicated on having lots of cheap energy from fossil fuels. And now we're at the point where that's becoming more difficult to maintain. So do we switch energy sources? Well, of course, uh, that's the, the sensible thing to do. But you can't do it on a dime. It takes planning. It takes time. It takes organization. And there may be technical limits to how much energy we can produce over, um, you know, any reasonable transition period like 20 to 40 years. So we're left in the lurch because we've built our economy on the assumption of perpetual growth. And if in fact we're in a situation where we don't have the prospect of growing our energy supplies over the next 20 to 40 years, but in fact are facing a situation where we may have to cut back on energy. Well, that just changes the whole game, and policymakers don't want to think about that. That's why no one mentions depletion in their discussions of the current, current energy crisis, because it's not something you can solve with a, you know, a wave of the hand or a new policy or, or even with more investment. It's something that's going to get worse inevitably.
1: In the TV news, there's a corner box there with a hand speaker for the deaf, and I'd like to add another one for real news about the environment. It could be like those disclaimers on pharmaceutical ads. When you buy a new gas-guzzling car or you fly the family to the tropics for a vacation, it comes with a warning label that says, well, this may also result in homelessness, mass migration, and deaths. I wonder, am I being too extreme to say that the mainstream media feels like it's become propaganda for a party of extinction?
0: Well, it is kind of that way. I mean, as I said just a minute ago, we depend on energy for everything. And so there's, as soon as our energy supplies are threatened in any way, we clamor for more. Even if we've just been talking about climate change and all of the problems it's going to create for us and the possibility of, you know, undermining agriculture and and the glaciers that supply water to 2 billion people are, are melting and, and, you know, it really cataclysmic impacts that are likely as a result of of climate change. Just after we've had that discussion, suddenly the price of of energy goes up and everybody is all about, well, can't Saudi Arabia pump some more? Uh, Shouldn't we invest more in fracking, et cetera? Very little long-range thinking or contextual thinking about the moment that we're in. It's an extraordinary moment, and it really calls for It calls for some adults in the room to really think this through.
1: There must be two Joe Bidens, because at the start of November, we saw President Biden warning the world of climate disaster and pushing for action. America would take a leadership role. By mid-November, the other Joe Biden was bringing more oil out of the strategic oil reserve. I noticed you were one of the few to comment on that. How do you read this?
0: Well, of course, this is this is a lot of hand-waving in order to avoid having to face the situation that, you know, we're going to have to learn how to use less energy over the next while. There's really no way around it. I, I worked with a colleague, David Fridley, of the Energy Analysis Program at Lawrence Berkeley National Lab. Uh, we worked together for a year, analyzing the the energy transition to solar and wind power, and what would be entailed in it, what the limits would be, and so on. And our conclusion was, you can do everything in the lab. You can pull carbon out of the atmosphere. You can make synthetic fuels that will work in airliners. Uh, you know, basically, there there are no purely technical limits to the transition, but the problem of scale is enormous simply because we use so much energy and so much... 80% of the energy we use comes from fossil fuels. And currently, solar and wind are providing only about 3.3% of our total energy globally. So we have a long way to go, and there are some real hurdles along the path with intermittency of of solar and uh, sunlight and wind and the, the, the materials that will be required to build the infrastructure that will be needed. You know, sunlight and wind are renewable, but the technologies that we use to capture them are not. They require sand for silicon, and every, you know, everybody thinks sand is limitless, but it's not. It's, uh, we're running short of high-grade high sand but that's only one of the materials, um, uh, copper, uh, nickel, neodymium, the, the list goes on and on. We may have enough to build out one generation of renewable power infrastructure, but that infrastructure, much of it will require replacement every 25 years or so. So what do we do for an encore? We really have to rethink how much energy we're using.
1: If we picture a major oil or gas company, there are long-term plans and huge amounts of financing, which is money coming at a price over time. Now the economy accelerates or shrinks based on public fear and mutations of a virus, Richard Heinberg, can fossil fuel production survive in a stop-and-start environment? I know you've written a lot about how their financing really works.
0: Well, it makes it difficult because uh, a lot of these projects are long-term projects, whether for oil, coal, or natural gas. the, The industry requires stable, high prices or their own internal investment. Now, of course, the external investment, people buying shares of of Exxon or your favorite coal company or whatever, external investment is going down because of the divestment campaigns being run by environmentalists. Why should we invest more in coal, oil, and natural gas if these fuels have no, no future and they're driving us off the ecological cliff? Well, that makes perfect sense. But then... The result is uh, lowering of the price of the shares in these companies, the stock shares. So the companies find themselves in a situation where it's actually better for their bottom line to buy back shares in their own companies than to invest in future production. That's one, just one of the perverse things that's going on in the fossil fuel industry right now. Then, uh, you know, drilling has declined in the uh, U.S. shares. Shale patch, which has been responsible for 90% of oil production growth over the past 10 years, um, and also, you know, the U.S. Has, has done spectacularly well with shale gas, becoming a net exporter by pipeline to Mexico and by LNG tanker to Europe. But that requires constant drilling, too. I mean, these all all of the shale reservoirs require very high rates of drilling. But if there isn't constant investment from the industry, then production goes down. And that's exactly what we're seeing.
1: In the early days of the pandemic, media stories reported fossil fuel use dropped significantly due to lockdowns, work from home, canceled vacations. But when the year ended, scientists reported carbon emissions increased again anyway. It makes us wonder, what would it take to even stabilize emissions, much less reduce them? Can we?
0: It would require significant reduction in energy usage, in, uh, especially in the highly industrialized countries. And, you know, a, a lot of those carbon emissions are coming also from countries like China and India. Uh, China has become the world's top carbon emitter, just because it relies so much on coal. So China is going to have to rejigger its entire its entire energy economy over the next couple of decades, and you know the Chinese know that, that that's what they're going to have to do. But it's uh, they haven't really figured out a solution. They are developing renewables as quickly as they can, but it's not nearly fast enough. To replace their reliance on coal. Meanwhile, you know they've been having to import coal from Australia because uh, Chinese have used so much coal that they've depleted their own coal mines to a pretty pretty large extent. India now is trying to do the same thing. So unless we figure out a solution for these countries, even belt tightening in countries like the U.S. is not going to make enough difference.
1: One last question before we get to your new book. Only a dozen years ago, you and to a certain degree I and a whole movement concluded the world would run out of fossil fuels before climate change could arrive. And that fit the scientific predictions of the day as well. Then came fracking, offshore drilling and more. How do you see climate change and depletion interlocking today?
0: Oh, that's that's a big question. You know, it's we've put off the energy transition uh, far too long for it to be some kind of gentle, controlled process, because the the transition itself is going to take a lot of energy, building all that infrastructure, not just for solar panels and wind turbines but and electric cars and heat pumps, but a a, a super grid uh, new industrial infrastructure for using electricity rather than fuels or new and or new infrastructure for producing synthetic fuels with electricity that can be used in hard to electrify processes like you know long distance aviation high heat processes like like making cement for concrete all of that is going to take an enormous amount of energy and right now most of that energy 80% of that energy is going to have to come from fossil fuels So ironically, we need a stable energy situation based on fossil fuels in order to manufacture the alternative energy infrastructure that we're going to need as fossil fuels deplete. But we've waited until the point where our fossil fuel-based energy system is becoming less stable. So it it makes makes the whole transition that much more fraught, that much more difficult.
1: This is Radio Ecoshock. We're investigating the sources of human powers. Uh, Richard Heinberg, author of the new book, Power, Limits and Prospects for Human Survival, is with us. And I looked through this book. I read it, actually, cover to cover. And it's not really a book about energy per se, about fossil fuels, solar and atomic energy. Something drove you to look for the deep narrative, the common narrative, like the water we swim in but we can't see what was bothering you that drove you into this book?
0: What prompted the book was three questions that have been tumbling around in my mind for, for years, and I've I've put some effort into articulating them as, as simply and clearly as possible. One is, why has just one species, our species, come to dominate the rest of the biosphere in a way that no other species has in at least tens of millions of years, possibly hundreds of millions? Uh, second, how and why have we come to dominate one another to such extent? Because, you know, the, the other, there are other social animals that have hierarchies, but nothing like what human beings have created. And third, is there anything we can do to change our relationship with power, to shift our trajectory and, and, and solve some of these you know, really, really serious environmental and social problems? Those questions led me on a search through biology and history and anthropology, evolutionary studies, and, and it was, uh, I have to say, it was the intellectual journey of a lifetime. And The, the End Result is, is, a, is a rather long book, but it's one that I think maybe doesn't help us to solve these problems, but helps us to see them in perspective. It's, I think my, my goal with, if, with the book is maybe wisdom, more than a new techno-fix or or a new instant solution to to some of these age-old problems. I look at power both in terms of energy. A a physicist would define power as the rate of transfer of energy. But we use the term power in ordinary conversation to refer to the, the ability to use energy to do something, like the power of flight or the power of speech. And we also use it to refer to social power, the ability to get other people to do something, the ability to influence others. So I, I trace the history of the development of power all the way from this beginning of evolution in the book, all the way up through uh, human social evolution, human history, the origin of the first states, and then the beginnings of the fossil fuel world we live in today, because Fossil fuels have really changed our relationship with power in profound ways. And the conclusion I come to in the, in the middle of the book is we've, we've overpowered nature and one another. Power is a good thing. We, could, we can't do anything without it. But it's possible to have too much of a good thing. And fossil fuels have done that to us. They've given us so much power so quickly that we have forgotten that there are natural limits just about everything we can do we've developed kind of a star trek mentality that says that even if we trash this planet we can jet off to other ones and and exploit those but that's not going to work for us Uh, wherever human beings have gone on this planet they've eventually learned that they have to fit in they have to abide by limits and we're going to have to learn that again today we can human beings have like all other species, have learned to live within nature's structures and limits. But we've forgotten that, and if we don't learn it again fast, we're in for a collision with those limits that may not be survivable.
1: I want to read a short quote from your introduction. You write, I test the widespread belief that the pursuit of power is irrepressible, that bullies will forever be bullies, that the high and mighty will ultimately triumph, and that people in wealthy countries will never willingly give up comforts and conveniences in order to forestall global environmental catastrophe, end quote. But isn't that all true?
0: Well, it is to a certain extent, but, you know, as I looked through nature and human history, I found instance after instance of self-limitation, species that choose to thrive in very rare and and harsh habitats where you know very few of them can survive and yet those are some of the most stable species on the planet in terms of population levels so they have they have traded population abundance for population stability in effect but all the way up through human history, the same thing, indigenous societies, you know, when people first arrived on new continents or islands, they tended to kill off the big herbivorous animals that could be used for food and caused the extinctions of all kinds of species. We're talking about things that happened 10,000 years ago and more. But once people dug in and learned to live within those environments over the long term, whether it was Australia or North America, they learned the lessons of limits and they incorporated into their cultures the need for resource conservation and sharing And that's why we turn to indigenous peoples today for inspiration on how to manage resources, just as we're doing here in California now with the wildfires. We're turning to Native Americans to learn about their their practices of landscape management prior to the European conquest. So these cultural understandings were developed through trial and error over a long time. We don't have a long time. We need to... In, in a sense, re-indigenize ourselves. We're everywhere on the planet now. And if we don't learn how to be indigenous to it, you know, we're not going to be able to escape to Mars and thrive there. This is it. This is where we rise or fall.
1: Well, as I covered in my last week's show, we're not all going to be able to escape to the Arctic or the far north, either, as the climate warms, because... Those communities are almost entirely dependent on fossil fuels now, except for the few indigenous people who knew how to live otherwise. So that's almost like a colony that we're trying to develop built on fossil fuels. If you can't live where you are from the resources around where you are, then I would say we really shouldn't encourage that kind of development anywhere.
0: Yeah, yeah, I, I certainly agree. I mean, we have so few pristine landscapes left on this planet. We need to preserve those for for the rest of the biosphere. I mean, over the last 50 years, we have caused the decline of other species, wild species, by 70%. In other words, there are 70% fewer mammals, amphibians, uh, reptiles, birds, and and so on, than there were 50 years ago. And it's all because we've taken over their habitat, we've poisoned them with pesticides and herbicides and and so on. And if we don't leave more of wild nature for wild nature recovery, then the future looks very, very grim also for our own species.
1: As you explain in your book, not all human power comes from repressing others and taking their resources what are some of the better sources of power that are left out of economic papers and, and the billionaire's playbook?
0: <laughs> well, I talk in the book a lot about the power of beauty, the, the search for beauty, the production of beauty, protection of beauty. Those are motives and incentives that have driven not just human behavior, but behavior throughout the animal kingdom and even even in, among plants. Nature puts enormous resources and effort into the production of beauty, Uh, flowering plants, animals of all kinds. Darwin talked about that in his uh, second great book, which was about sexual selection. Much of this is is about attracting mates, uh, but once the investment is made in the production of beauty and the enjoyment of beauty, then it tends to continue with a momentum of its own long past the immediate necessity of attracting a mate that's why birds sing even though it's it's not mating season and we humans have have gotten into the beauty business in a big way the uh, problem of course is that we have created a kind of aesthetic decadence with the commercialization of of beauty where now it serves the purposes of consumption economic growth and our own you know self-undoing, if beauty could be freed from that yoke once again uh, so that it serves the community, the production of beauty could be a a motive in human culture and human society as it once was that supplants the drive for competitive growth and that enables communities to cohere and that makes life beautiful for people. Uh, you know, the production of beauty does not have to be extremely energy intensive. It doesn't require the destruction of nature. uh, It can proceed on a a very modest basis and yet provide enormous returns for the people who are producing it and enjoying it. So we could have a beautiful future if we choose to.
1: Well, as you said, and as I found also in the French philosopher Paul Virilio, it is over success that is killing us and some people hope the fossil-powered system will crash before it really is too late to save ourselves and the other species, and it feels so unkind to hope for a fall in gross domestic product or an end to useless shopping. It it would be a hard revolution. How do we live with the paradox of betting against our own comfortable lifestyles?
0: <laughs> yeah, that's that's a tough one. Like everyone else, I enjoy stability. I enjoy the status quo because it it provides a lot of perks for us. And it's it's terrible to imagine a future in which we really have to give up so many of our current perks and conveniences and, and so on. And, of course, that's why the environmental movement back in the 1970s largely failed is because people were being called on to... as as Jimmy Carter did on television, you know, wear sweaters, turn down the thermostat, and prepare for a future of less and harder existence. Well, we gave up the chance to do that in in a a measured, easy way. Now the the adaptation is going to be much more difficult, and it's hard to look forward to it or to welcome it or to call for it because it will entail suffering. But nevertheless, you know, from a larger perspective, it it is inevitable. And the best thing we can do is prepare ourselves for it and to make the most of it. So building more social cohesion within our communities, learning to live with less now, getting to know nature by taking a a permaculture course or a course on primitive technology skills, uh, those are things we can do right now to change our, our attitudes, our our habituations, and to learn to live in the 21st century. We're still, most of us, living in a, in a 20th century lifestyle, but the 21st century, the rest of it, is going to be very, very different.
1: That's a beautiful place to leave it, Richard. From California, we've been speaking with Richard Heinberg, Senior Fellow at the Post Carbon Institute and well-known author of at least a dozen books on energy, resilience, and community. I started getting his muse letter years ago, And it's now at around Issue 350, I believe. You can find out more on my blog at ecoshock.org, but of course at richardheinberg.com. Look for his new book, Power, Limits and Prospects for Human Survival. Richard, on behalf of my listeners and your chickens, thank you for keeping going.
0: (laughs) Oh, thank you. Thank you for keeping going, Alex. It's always a pleasure.
1: I'm Alex Smith. Thank you for listening to Radio Ecoshock.
0: This is a climate emergency. Find out more on the blog, icashock.org.